0: Well, thank you, Shane. That was awesome. Thank you all for being here once again. As Matt talked during the announcements, we have so much to celebrate here. And, and I know I am just so thankful and I feel truly blessed to just be a part of what God is doing here. And, and I just know that he's doing something amazing through this church, in the community, and through all of you. And, and Andrea and I, since getting here, have just repeatedly said that that we can just feel God moving on Sunday and throughout the week and, and through all of you and and it's just exciting to be part of that. Um, we've said it a couple times over the past uh, few weeks, and we'll most likely continue to say it as we go through this book of First Corinthians that this is such a, a great book of the Bible for us to be studying um, as a church and us specifically. Um, it is a clear example of what can go wrong in a church when we start to put ourselves and other men before God. And although we have so much to celebrate here, we are a young church. And if we don't learn from the Bible and the churches that are in the Bible, we risk the chance of falling into the same problems that they did. Now, it's also always good to remember that even though these books are broken up into chapters and verses, and we've even broken this first chapter up into three different sermons, the entire thing is meant to be read as one letter from front to back. And so that's why Matt challenged everyone to read it all the way through, and I'm sure everyone's done that by now. But I'm going to go ahead and just re-up that challenge and I'm going to re-challenge you to say reread it. Don't just read it once, check off the box, and say, okay, I'm done with that, I'm good to go. Continue to read it. As you come here and you hear sermons, read it again and read it again. To learn, to see what else God is saying. Read it in different translations, read it with commentaries, whatever you can get your hands on. Just be soaking up as much as you can of the book of Corinthians as we go through it. It's always amazing to me when I read a book multiple times, a book of the Bible multiple times, what God can speak through that every time when I read it, what he illuminates to me or enlightens me to or teaches me every different time. doesn't matter how many times I read it. Last week, we had Ronnie Goble here. He's a church planner from Cornerstone. And he taught us from chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And the reason I mention that is because that last verse in 17 Really sets up my passages for today. And that's why I talked about that idea of it's all one letter, because turns out it all just flows into each other. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is pointing to the fact that the Corinthians had been putting a lot of emphasis on human wisdom, and on eloquent speech. And he says that none of that matters. It doesn't matter how wise you are and how eloquent a speaker is without the cross. So today we're going to be digging into the last section of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 18 through 31. So if you'll head over there as I continue to talk, that would be great to help us get through. Um, the section today as you get over there, the section today can really be split into two parts. And those parts are the content of the gospel and the people of the gospel. And depending on what translation you're looking at, it may even appear that way in your Bible where it's two different paragraphs. And the two paragraphs are really the content and the people. And then within those two parts, Paul is really going to be focusing On human wisdom and foolishness versus godly wisdom, he's me comparing and contrasting them. So I ask you, what do you consider foolish? I once preached an, an entire sermon on just foolishness. Trust me, I was a youth pastor at that time, and so trust me, as a youth pastor. I really had foolishness figured out. If you want to hear some of the most ridiculous, foolish stories you've probably ever heard, go hang out with some youth pastors and just hear them tell stories about games they've played and teaching series that they've done. It's hilarious what some of us think are good ideas to do. Right, Shane? Whenever we discuss foolishness within the church, it's helpful to define it. For most of us, When we hear the word fool, we may think of some of these guys. Some of culture's favorite fools, right? As someone who has binged watch all of The Office and just from Christmas till now gotten all the way through Parks and Rec, those are the guys that I think of First and foremost, when I think of fool, I think of Michael Scott and Andy Dwyer. Like, I hear the word fool and scenes from those shows just pop to my brain over and over and over again. We think of someone who is intellectually deficient. That's what a fool is to us. And in fact, it's how Webster's Dictionary actually defines it. It is a person who lacks good sense or judgment, a stupid or silly person. Other words that may come to mind when you think the word fool is idiot, witless, brainless, thoughtless, or unintelligent. Most of the time when the Bible is using the word fool, it's not actually referring to those words and those ideas of foolishness. When you go through Proverbs, most of the time when it's talking about the fool, it's talking about someone's moral standing before God. Things like the fool says in his heart that there is no God. But Paul here is starting off saying that the cross and the way that it appears to the world are all of those things that we may think of when we hear the word fool. The cross appears idiotic, foolish, stupid, silly, unintelligent. Ronnie talked about the divisions that were forming in the church, and as we turn into this last part of chapter one, we will see another big issue that was dividing the church, and that is Knowledge. So follow along as I read just that first section, verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here we see the content of the gospel. The word of the cross is, is folly, and some translations say foolishness. Why is the cross, why is the gospel message, why is it foolishness? Paul is trying to make the point that the message of the cross is, would completely baffle people. Think about the message. Think about the gospel. We, we've heard it for years, and it has become acceptable. But think about it in their time. That a holy, perfect, and complete God wanted to restore the relationship between humanity and humans, so much so that he gave his only son, to live a perfect, holy life. And then that son died a criminal's death on the cross. And if we believe in that message, we believe that it's true, and we put our whole trust in Jesus, He will, for, God will forgive every wrong thing we have ever done and ever will do. And then he will allow us, us broken, imperfect people, he will allow us To live with him in heaven for all of eternity. That seems crazy. And I can guarantee that it seemed preposterous to the people in this age, and especially to the Corinthians. That's why Paul is writing this. He is telling them that not to focus on eloquent speech or or watering down the gospel to make it more palatable for non believers. He's saying, you don't have to make it less crazy. Just give them the message that I gave you. In verse 19, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says the word of the cross would destroy human wisdom. Destroy it. Paul is using this Old Testament prophet to prove a point. He sees this verse in Isaiah fulfilled in Jesus. And he's saying, it was always the plan, what seems preposterous and crazy now, it was always the plan. Since Genesis chapter 3, since the fall of man, this was the plan. But yet they didn't see it. Let me ask a, a s- sidebar question How many people like superhero movies? You're like, what is this? Where is this going? I love. Superhero movies. I absolutely love them. We go to opening nights and we watch all of them. I prefer Marvel, but DC is okay. But I love superhero movies. But there is one superhero that I don't like. And I often root against this one superhero. Superman. Oh, I can't stand him. I, I, I hate him. I, oh, he is... I know at this point I'm causing divisions between me and some of you, and we'll work through that. We can love through it, but I could stand up here. There are numerous reasons why I can't stand Superman. And I could probably give an entire sermon on how much I hate Superman. But I won't do that today. <laughs> One of the biggest reasons that I dislike him is his disguise, it's ridiculous. How can they not tell it's Clark Kent? Like the little kid gets it. No one else can. No one can tell it's Superman. It's just glasses and his hairstyle different. If I came up here and got put glasses on and styled my hair different, I'd be like, "Who's that guy? I don't know who that is. That's so weird." <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Maybe it's just me, but it drives me crazy. He does not look that different. And then in the movies or in the TV shows, when somebody finally finds out who he is, they're like, oh, I had no idea. Really? <laughs> he took off his glasses. Like, And does he never take off his glasses? I just, oh, yeah. So I'm done venting. <sighs> it's right in front of them the whole time. The knowledge of who he is, the knowledge of Clark Kent and Superman is right in front of these people the whole time, but they just don't see it because they're not looking for it. They don't want it to be so. Paul is making the point clear in this verse. He's saying the knowledge of the Messiah, the crucifixion, it was always meant to be this way. It was always meant to destroy human wisdom. The plan for redemption was for God to be crucified, and that is unfathomable to people the idea that a deity a god in the first century would willingly die for humans was ridiculous theologian gordon fee says that no mere human in his right mind or otherwise would have ever dreamed up god's scheme for redemption through a crucified messiah It is too preposterous too humiliating for god To understand this, we have to understand the the culture at that time as well. This is a time when people believed in many gods, and these gods used humans as puppets to achieve what they wanted. And they were gods that were constantly striving to one-up each other and get the upper hand. There are numerous stories of Greek, Babylonian, and Roman gods attempting to overthrow each other so they could be the one in charge of the heavens. But yet what we believe, and our Bible, points us to a God that sacrificed himself, was tortured, and died for us. That's the message of the cross. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we have to admit that the whole story seems crazy, even nowadays, the message of the Bible can, can be foolishness to people. If you have ever spent any time in a secular upper education facility, a, a public college, you may have seen this firsthand. It doesn't take long to bump into a professor at a public college who will loudly proclaim that evolution, the theory that men came from monkeys or the Big Bang, that these are all facts, not theories. These are facts to them. And then they'll say, there is no God. The Bible is ridiculous. There is no absolute truth. I think this may cause some of us to be afraid to share our beliefs. We know that the story can sound foolish to those who do not believe. So we try to doctor it up, and we try to make it sound less crazy, or we even maybe apologize for our beliefs. This was also going on Corinth and the rest of the world during Paul's time we can see that in verses 20 and 21 and it really feels as if Paul is speaking to even the atheist of our days the last question in verse 20 has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world God is flipping wisdom on its head and verse 21 shows us how there's, there's no way to figure out God with our own understanding. You cannot learn enough about God to be godly. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach and what we say. Christ crucified. That's the message. It's not just standing up here and preaching whatever we want, whatever we want to say, and just saying fancy things. It is the reason we always point back to the cross. It is the reason we always bring it back to Jesus. The emphasis is on the message, the content. What we say, what we preach, it matters. As Christians, we are at our weakest when we lose sight of the message of the cross. Paul says, the wisdom of the world is foolish. Culture Today tells us to pursue knowledge just to be knowledgeable. We have people getting masters and double masters and doctorates and going to school and over and And I'm not trying to discredit education. I'm getting my master's degree. I think that's perfectly acceptable if you have a goal for it. But the people that I've ran into that are simply getting degrees just to get degrees. Just to get as many letters behind their name as they possibly can. That's what culture tells us you need to do. You need to be the smartest. When Andrea, Andrea went to the University of Iowa, and she had this professor there, and we first got the syllabus and saw who he was, we were actually kind of excited. He had a master. He was, so he was her teacher for biblical archaeology, yes. So he had a master's of divinity from Trinity. He had a, a master's... Of theology. He had a doctorate in theology. He went on archeologi- archaeological excavations every single year to the Holy Land, to Israel, to dig up biblical artifacts. I was like, I was so excited. I was like, this is going to be incredible for you. You're going to be able to learn so much from this man. Then we started listening to his lecture, and just as you can imagine, listening to this man speak just made me feel like a fool. He was brilliant but it didn't take long to realize he was an atheist. He got all of this education to disprove the Bible. He went to college to get an education on the Bible to disprove it. He went every year to Israel to dig up artifacts to prove the Bible wasn't true. That was his life. He devoted his life to disproving everything. He is the smartest man, one of the smartest men I have ever heard communicate But if he continues on this path of unbelief, he will be the smartest, wisest man burning in hell someday. The worldly wisdom will do him no good. The wisdom of the world is foolish. It can be. The next section in verses 22 through 24 shows us the religious argument of the day. It says that the the cross was a stumbling block for the Jews. The word stumbling block in Greek is a word called scandalon. That's the word that is used there, scandalon. And it's where we get the word scandalous from. The gospel is scandalous. That's why I, I actually asked Shane to sing that song, Scandal of Grace. Because it went so well. The words in that perfectly encompass what we're saying here. The gospel is absolutely scandalous. Everything about the gospel is scandalous. Like I said, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. They had been memorizing the Bible and studying it inside and out, they were looking for the Messiah. But Jesus was not what they wanted, He was not what they expected. To the world, Jesus was an illegitimate son from Galilee. Even worse than that, a town named Nazareth. The apostles even say that about Jesus when they first hear about him. In, in John one forty six, the apostle Nathanael asked his brother, can anything good even come from Nazareth? Galilee was a, a region in Israel, sort of like a state, And within that region were towns like Nazareth. Saying that the Messiah was born in Nazareth of Galilee was like saying the king of kings had been born in the most insignificant, poor, redneck town possible in Israel. Galileans, as a whole, were looked down on by the rest of the Israelites. But even other Galileans looked down on people from Nazareth. So you have all that offensiveness to the Jews of who his parents were and what his profession was and where he came from, all of that offensiveness. And then you throw into the whole mess just the cross. That this Messiah died a criminal's death on the cross. Absolutely not. That's scandalous to them. It would never happen. God would never do that. Greeks also considered the the gospel foolishness. That's what he says here. They did not believe in a bodily resurrection. That just couldn't happen. And they didn't see in Jesus the, the powerful characteristics of their mythological gods. He wasn't throwing lightning bolts or wiping out towns with tidal waves. He was just a dude that preached. They thought that no Reputable person would ever be crucified. To them, death was defeat, not victory. The good news of Jesus still sounds so foolish to many people. Our society worships power and influence and wealth, and Jesus came as a, a humble, poor servant. And he offers his kingdom to those who have faith, not those who do all kinds of good works and good deeds to try and earn his gifts that looks foolish to the world but Christ is our power and the only way we can be saved knowing Christ personally is the greatest wisdom anyone can have in verse 25 we have the the end of this section the content of the gospel and it has this very peculiar saying it says for the wisdom of god is or for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men the foolishness and the weakness of god what does that even mean like to me god is not foolish and he is not weak there's nothing foolish or weak about god paul is trying to use human terms our our words to explain an infinitely holy, perfect God. And sometimes those words just don't match up with who God truly is. But he's saying, even at his worst, even at God's worst point, which is still holy, perfect, and infinite, he is better than you at your best. Even at God's foolishness and his weakest, he is the best. God could have done something so much more powerful, so much more amazing, something that sounded way more smarter than the cross. But he didn't. He wanted to prove that even in what appeared to be his weakest attempt, dying, he could still save the whole world. God's weakness makes our strength look stupid. God's foolishness makes our wisdom look dumb. What is the point of all of this foolishness of the message? The end of verse 21 says it. To save those who believe. That's the point of all the foolishness. There are only two types of people in this world. Dead or alive. No matter how smart, powerful, rich, popular, or moralistic you are, you are either alive in Christ or dying in your sins. There is no in-between. There is no, I'm moving towards Jesus, I'm walking towards him. You are either dying in your sins or alive in Christ. Human wisdom tells us that there is no God, that we have to have proof to substantiate what we believe, that faith is foolish, that we need to learn more to understand who God is and to understand his plans. Godly wisdom tells us to believe in the unseen, to trust in what is not cool or popular, to have faith in when it seems that God cannot be real, that he is distant and far off, just to have faith. The last few verses in this chapter point us to the people of the gospel. And as we said, the, the content is as foolish as it is, the content of the gospel, but the people of the gospel carry their own foolishness to the world. Verses 26 through 31. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The people of the gospel seem foolish to the world. Paul is really calling out the Corinthians here. And it's funny because we have already heard these Corinthian believers were starting to boast in themselves. They were bragging about which leader they had gotten saved from and learned from. And in the next few chapters, we're going to see that they were bragging in their spiritual gifts and what they could do for God. They were making it all about them. But Paul, in this amazing way, just puts them all in check. He says, Not many of you were wise, not many were strong, not many were noble. It's like he's saying, I remember who you were. I spent time with you people, I know you. You're not that great, you're not that special. Remember that. Just, I want you to remember who you were, because I remember. But that is who God chose to use in Corinth. And it's who he often chooses to use. Just think about the apostles. The men that Jesus pulled close to him and attached to him. The ones he chose to carry on his mission. Fishermen, shepherds, tax collectors, and zealots. These were the biggest losers of that time fishermen and shepherds were considered to be the lowliest of jobs they didn't require much education if anyone any anyone with a staff or a net could probably pull it off and they were smelly jobs they smelled like fish and sheep all day long like that's it's not a job that people aspire to be in first century then we have tax collectors Even nowadays, people don't love tax collectors. No one loves getting that call from the IRS. But back then, almost every tax collector was a crook. They (laughs) started, you're laughing, maybe it's still all right. That's what you're thinking. But I'm sorry if any of your tax collectors, I don't know. Back then, they were almost all crooks and they would charge extra so they could skim some off the top And line their own pockets. Then you have the zealots. One of the apostles is specifically referred to as a zealot in the in the gospel when it's saying who Jesus chose. It says, "And Simon the zealot." Nobody else is referred to uh, by their profession, but Simon is. It's like we just want to point out we have this guy with us. They were the terrorists of the first century. They believed that God would bring about the Messiah by them personally overthrowing the Roman government or whatever government was in charge at that time. So they would stage violent oppositions to the foreign governments that were controlling them, even if it meant that their fellow Jews were injured or killed. They didn't care. They would just blow up synagogues and temples and burn things down because they needed to overthrow the Romans. Now, as we continue through the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, God's chosen people don't get much better either. Prostitutes, traitors, murderers. I think about this often as I I read stories about God's people. And I think about the idea of talent scouts. Talent scouts for professional or college teams. Talent scouts are sent all across the country to find the best players in a certain sport and when you have an athlete that seems to be better than all the rest scouts come from all over the country little itty-bitty Ames Iowa really came under the focus several years ago right we had Harrison Barnes at Ames High we had University of North Carolina and Villanova and even Iowa State was trying and the Chicago Bulls are coming and all of these teams are coming to Ames Iowa to watch this guy play Every team wants to get the best player because then they have the, the best chance to win the national championship or the Super Bowl or the World Series. If God were a talent scout, he'd be the worst. <laughs> He's the worst talent scout. He'd probably get fired, right? This, this is who you brought me again, God? Come on, let's, let's, let's get some better people. Human wisdom tells us to pick the best, the brightest, and the most talented. And God could have chosen to use kings and queens and the religious leaders. And some of the people that God has used over the years have been upper class or noble birth. But by and large, God chooses to use those who are considered the outcasts to bring about his plan of redemption for nations and cities. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me so much hope. I have a chance. You don't have to be a superstar communicator of the gospel to be effective. But why would God choose to use the lowly, the despised, the foolish? Verse 27 says, to shame the wise. And verse 29, so that no man may boast. I bet if God would have sent Jesus straight to the religious leaders, and Jesus would have walked right into that temple in front of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he would have transfigured himself and revealed the full glory of God in front of those religious leaders, the story would have been much different. They would have immediately put him in every temple, and the entire country of Israel would have believed. But that's not how he chose to do it. He did it on a mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, He revealed himself to three fishermen, two who had anger management issues, and one who was a coward and would eventually betray him in just a couple more chapters. Those religious leaders had drifted from God. And they had put all their identity in their religious activity. God was shaming them for their religion and their human traditions. God wants to make sure that we have everything we need in him Not in our powers and abilities, but everything in Christ. God chose to use the people that he has so that all glory and honor points to him. Now when Tom Brady wins another Super Bowl this year, when he wins another Super Bowl, it will be all about him and his team because he's amazing, it's what he does, he wins Super Bowls. Even when it looks like he can't, he somehow wins them. I don't know how he does it, but he does. When you turn off the TV, because you're like, well, this one's over, and then he wins. Like, it's it's incredible what he, what he does, but it's all about him and his abilities and his team's abilities. But when God sends a man to a foreign country, and that man can't even speak the language, and yet somehow through a broken translator, God uses that man to save people in that country. It's all about God and the fact that he can, and what he can do with broken, imperfect vessels. Godly wisdom says that it's not about us and what we can do for him. It's about what God can do through us. You don't have to be the best or the smartest or the most talented. You just have to believe in him And be obedient to what he is calling you to do next. Just take that next step in obedience. Lastly, in verses 30 and 31, we see what we have been given through Christ. Jesus. That's what we've been given. We've been given Jesus. And that's honestly all we need. Jesus is wisdom. The Bible tells us that true wisdom is found in knowing and obeying God and we do this through Jesus. We cannot fully know God apart from Jesus and his word. Through his word, we understand all that has been given to us. As followers of Jesus, we are considered righteous, we are considered sanctified, and we are redeemed. Now, as we close chapter one of 1 Corinthians, we can see the mistakes that they were already making, and we're going to see many more mistakes. They were not living up to their holy calling but instead they were following the standards of the world. They ignored the fact they were called into a a wonderful spiritual fellowship with Jesus and each other. Instead, they were identifying with human leaders and creating divisions in the church. Instead of glorifying God and his grace, they were pleasing themselves and boasting about men and their own wisdom. They were a defiled, disgraced, divided church. But before we pass too much judgment on the Corinthians, we should always examine ourselves. Because like I said, it doesn't take too long for us to start to slide into these behaviors as well. We need to realize that we all are able to fall into the same sins as the Corinthians. God's message and the people he chooses to use don't make sense and it's hard Because we all want a God that can make sense. We want a perfectly packaged up little God that we can present to people and say, this is what I believe. And it makes sense. See, why wouldn't you believe in this? The fact that Jesus was a, a poor boy from a poor family and that he came from a loser town was far from human wisdom. The fact that God chooses to use Imperfect vessels and outcasts like me is foolish. Outcasts and imperfect vessels like you all, it's foolish. When you feel like you aren't good enough, smart enough, talented enough, rejoice. Because you are in good company. We are all not smart enough, good enough, moral enough. God has chosen us, though. If you ever feel like you don't need to hear about the cross, if you're ever like, oh, they're talking about Jesus and the cross again, they do that every week. That is when you need it the most. You need Jesus and only Jesus. I want you all to leave here today and realize that the gospel is foolish to the world or the world around the world around, world around us. It is. It's scandalous. It's foolish. And it's offensive. But it's powerful. Do not shy away from sharing that foolish, scandalous, offensive, powerful message because it brings life. Let's pray. Father, the message of the cross, it doesn't make sense at times. And sometimes as we learn more and more about you and what you've done, it makes even less sense. And then we start to try and figure out Why would you choose to use us, God? Why would you use me? I'm so broken. I'm so imperfect. I make so many mistakes. But that's who you chose to use, God. And so I thank you for that foolishness. Help us to grab a hold of that foolish, offensive, scandalous message and just proclaim it to all that we can. Help us to know that you've called us to this. Thank you, God, in your name we pray. Amen.